Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to Night Fright. Wonderful guest for us tonight, folks. You're going to really want to settle in and listen to this show. Beverly Oliver is joining us, just a young 17-year-old girl. She happened to be in Daly Plaza, November 22nd, 1963. What she witnessed there was the assassination of President Kennedy. You can actually see her in the Zapruder film, which I'm showing to you right now. What's unique about this story, folks, is she knew Jack Ruby three days later after the assassination. Jack Ruby assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald. The Warren Report said that Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby didn't know each other. Well, that's not true because Lee Harvey Oswald was introduced to Beverly in Jack Ruby's club because Lee Harvey Oswald was in there with another fellow by the name of David Ferry, and it's going to get complicated really fast, and I, don't, I want to jump to Beverly as quickly as I can. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Welcome, welcome, one and all. Our guest tonight, Beverly Oliver, has got a book out called Nightmare in Dallas. She's living history, folks. She was there November 22nd, 1963, directly in Daly Plaza. She was filming the assassination. You can see her in the Zapruder film. Some say, folks, uh, that on that day... The world changed, indeed, uh, definitely America changed, but some say the world changed. And we're going to talk about that, all the events that led up to the assassination, and specifically what happened to Beverly after the assassination as well. This is a story, folks, of intrigue. It is a story that should be turned into a feature film. Indeed, it has been part of her story, was turned in to the movie JFK. Uh, she met Oliver Stone, Kevin Costner, and oh, man, what a story this is, folks. I want to welcome Beverly for the, very, for the second time to Night Fright. And uh, Beverly, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us all the way from Texas. I presume you're in Texas right now. Yes, thank you for having me. It's my privilege and honor. Thank you so much. 17 years old, and all of a sudden, November 22nd, 1963, the president's head explodes in front of you. Yeah. Let's back up from that moment, though, right now. Let's go back a year, let's say. You're in Dallas, Jack Ruby, that whole scenario... Um, they're dancing girls, you're in the entertainment industry. How did you come to meet this fella, Jack Ruby? And folks, for those of you that are 
too young to remember this. Jack Ruby um, owned a club by the name of the Carousel Club. And why Jack Ruby is important in this whole narrative is because Jack Ruby, three days after the assassination of President Kennedy, managed to kill Lee Harvey Oswald, who was the accused assassin. And this has all these spider webs and they all join and it is intricate, convoluted, but extremely simple in all of its um, components. And we're going to explain that as we go along. Bear with us for, for the beginning because this is all going to come together at the very end. Bev, how did you come to meet Jack Ruby? Well, I was working at the Colony Club, which was separated only by a parking lot from Jack Ruby's club, the Carousel Club. And I started working down there at a very young age, very underage. And of course, I lied about my age. But um, anyway, um, I would catch the bus uh, from Garland, Texas and ride it in by myself to downtown Dallas, work at the Colony Club go back home on the 1230 bus and one night I was walking down Akron Street which is no longer a street if you've been to Dallas recently and um, the Baker Hotel drugstore opened up onto Akron and uh, this man stepped out of the door and the doorway and scared the mud out of me and it was Jack Ruby and he introduced himself to me and of course he could tell that I was too young to be out that time of night by myself and from that day forward Jack Ruby walked me to the bus station every Friday and Saturday night. So on the one hand, you've got Jack Ruby as a gentleman. He was extremely um, open and kind of took you under his wing, didn't he? I mean, here you are, yes. this young 15, 16-year-old girl uh, working in the entertainment industry. Uh, Jack is kind of um, portrayed in the movie JFK as kind of a, a rough guy, uh, but he's got a bit of a heart of gold, doesn't he, at the same aspect? Yes, he did. He was a rough guy when it came to men, you know, in handling arguments amongst the customers between men. But I never, ever knew Jack to be um, disrespectful to a female. Not ever. I mean, he would be foolish. I've heard people say that he beat his women. That would be stupid. They got up at night and took their clothes off. Are you going to pay to see a bruised up, battered up woman on stage? Of course not. He didn't beat his women. Didn't beat them at all. Now. In Jack's case, um, what was his character like? There's been reports flying around for years that uh, Jack and Lee Harvey Oswald, for example, were bed partners, that perhaps he was gay. Um, is there any credence to any of this at all? or? Well, I really don't know. He, uh, he never tried anything with me, but I was jailbait. I never saw any of those type of tendencies with Jack. However, back in the 60s, you have to understand, people didn't wear uh, labels like they do now. Everybody was just kinky. You know, it was a kinky society in the 60s. Completely different than what it is now, I suspect. Now. What was the whole scenario like? I'd like to get into Jack's character a little bit. Um, you know, he was running a club, the Carousel Club. Uh, he was keeping late hours, of course. He had dancing girls. But the club was not a strip club per se. I mean, yes, there was, you know, women dancing, etc., etc. But there was also uh, magicians performing. You mentioned yeah, it magicians. Was 
It was a, a burlesque show, but all burlesque shows, like I didn't take my clothes off either. I tried it once, but the man started yelling, put it back on, so I figured that wasn't my calling in life. <laughs> but it was a strip club. Uh, but back then, when you talk about strip clubs, they were burlesque shows, which is different than the strip clubs are today. Uh, you see more on the beach now than you saw on the stage back in the 60s. And they all had an act, and it was men brought their wives. It was it was entertainment. I didn't realize that. Uh, folks, we're speaking with Living History tonight, November 22nd, 1963, Daily Plaza. Beverly Oliver was there. She was known as the Babushka Lady for years. Nobody could ever identify this young lady that was there. Uh, very visible in the Sapruder film. She witnessed JFK's fatal shot. She was right there. Um, Beverly, I'd like now to talk a little bit about the Galveston trip that that, that took place uh, just a few days before uh, the assassination, November 18th, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's the right date. Um, I am getting older, but we just went down to Galveston and... Um, Jack always got me a room. I never stayed in the same room with him. Uh, he, uh, what, what part of the trip do you want to know about? Well, I'd like to know. It seemed a little bit of cloak and dagger there. Um, you flew down on a private airplane, mm -hmm. uh, kind of outside the, the norm, if you will, for Jack Ruby. Uh, it was almost like he was going there to meet somebody of repute or maybe perhaps of ill repute. Um, how do you recall the meetings that, that took place there and, and your whole scenario that was there? Well, as I, as the years have come by, uh, gone by, and I've learned more about the assassination as far as history is concerned. You see, I, Brent, I don't read the books and I don't listen to other people because I'm still blonde enough to believe that someday I might get to get on a witness stand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help me God. And I don't want what I heard and what I saw to be uh, convoluted with what other people felt and saw. But as I look back on that trip now, I'm sure it wasn't just for pleasure because I didn't see Jack again until dinner that night. And I was supposed to be at work that night, but I had a few two margaritas that day and was trying to learn how to surf in Galveston, which the waves are like two feet tall. And so as soon as I'd get up on the surfboard, it would the rudder would hit the sand and I'd fall over and hit my nose. And I had a <laughs> bruised nose, scab, scabbed that face. And when I did get back to work the next night, Abe Weinstein threatened to fire me. My boss threatened to fire me. And you were also sunburned, apparently. You looked like a red but lobster. I did. I did. And as fair as I am, that, that was a bad burn. Now, at that time, uh, did Jack ever mention uh, his politics? Was he a fan of, of JFK? Uh, did, was, did he, you know, because he was connected with the mob at that point, uh, did he ever mention Bobby's onslaught uh, against the mob? Because, you see, folks, Bobby Kennedy was after the mob at that point. He was going after Carlos Mocello, and, and uh, Jack Ruby uh, was kind of on this on the outs outskirts of being connected with the mob in Dallas did he ever mention Kennedy's politics or whether he was a fan or we didn't actually discuss politics per se because I was very young and I guess perceived to be not too bright uh, although I am very politically active 
but he hated John Kennedy and he hated Bobby Kennedy. I never heard him mention, um, <laughs> gee, the youngest brother. <laughs> oh, Teddy, uh, Teddy. Teddy, Teddy just went had a blonde moment. And he, uh, but he hated, uh, <laughs> but see, I don't have the privilege of coffee. He hated uh, those two boys. And um, that's what I found so absurd about the news reports after he killed uh, uh, Lee Hos Harvey Oswald, that he did it because he loved the Kennedys. Now, he did admire and respect Jackie Kennedy. He thought she was a lady of class, but he did not. His exact words, I can't say his exact words on television, but he hated JFK. He hated his brother, Bobby, and he hated that so-and-so daddy of theirs even more. Did he ever have any connections with um, Joe Kennedy, who was the father of JFK? Because we know Joe uh, was running all kinds of illegal things uh, prior in the 50s and things like that. Was there ever any connection there with, uh, I understand Jack may have known Nixon actually as well. I, I don't know of any connections that he had with the Kennedys on a personal level at all. Fair enough, fair enough. Now Jack came from Chicago. Um, yes. Was there ever uh, any mention of um, the mafia or the connections? Was he ever displaying any nervousness around you that, uh, oh my God, Bev, this is going to happen? Because you guys were pretty close. Yes, but he never he never really talked about anything like that. It's just that you have to understand Dallas in 63, everybody was in the mob. You know, uh, and and we, the showgirls, I mean, we just thought it was the movies, or I did, let me rephrase that. I just thought these things happen in the movies. It's just not real life because we lived in our own little world that wasn't the real world. It was not the real world. Folks, the, please. And so I just never gave the mob a second thought. I mean, there was always men coming in both clubs, all three clubs, the, the theater lounge, the colony club, and the carousel club with bulges in their, you know, their coats and pockets. And, you know, guns were always being thrown under the table when the vice squad came in. Uh, folks, we're speaking with real living history tonight. Bev Oliver was uh, right there in the thick of things during 1963, just prior to the assassination. Um, she knew Jack, Jack Ruby very, very well, extremely well, and is attesting to his character and some of his traits, some of the bizarre traits um, that he displayed. Also, uh, she was right in Daly Plaza that day when JFK was assassinated. She filmed, actually filmed, the assassination, and that camera was taken away from her by the FBI, and we're going to get to that very shortly. Um, we're going to take you right through the whole scenario when the motorcade came through, what she saw, what she heard, uh, the smells, etc., gunpowder. We're going to go there, folks. Real living history tonight. And that's what I love about this show. You get to speak to incredible people, um, you know, Dr. Robert McClellan was on the show, folks, uh, not that long ago. Uh, she, uh, he uh, was the doctor that worked on JFK. And uh, living history, folks, this is where we're going, November 22nd, 1963. We're unraveling that puzzle. The book is called Nightmare in Dallas. Now, this book parallels JFK's presidency in a timeline 
with Beverly's, uh, what Beverly's, ta what's happening in Dallas with Beverly, for example, um, talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, what Beverly was doing at that time. Now, that was kind of a segue for me to ask you, do you recall the Cuban Missile Crisis? I mean, you were just a kid, I know, 15, and perhaps sheltered from that, but that seemed to be a huge red flag at the time, uh, even more so, people tell me, than 9-11. Do you recall that at all? The Cuban I, missile crisis? I, I recall the Cuban Missile Crisis. I recall all of the late 50s and early 60s when everybody had storm shelters. They were really bomb shelters. Yeah. We even had one in our backyard at 2137 Saturn Road. Wow. Yeah. So it was an ever-present threat, wasn't it? The fact that a nuclear holocaust could happen at any second. Yes, it was. It really was. It was a very scary time because we didn't understand nuclear like we do now. Uh, and uh, that in itself, just the word nuclear, was a boogeyman. Completely. Now, uh, just going back to that time, uh, you mentioned a bomb shelter, of course. How did you feel about JFK? How did you feel about Bobby? I... Um, I had no particular feelings about Bobby. I didn't study him at all. Um, and I felt if he was good enough to be the president's brother, he must be pretty good. So I didn't have any ill feelings toward him. Uh, now, JFK, I admired tremendously. Uh, I still do. I admire the things that he believed in and the things that he tried to achieve during his short term. And I am one of those who definitely believes, had he not been killed, the world would have a different complexion and what it does today. Uh, he was the first president born in our century, That's right. you know, and uh, he was incredibly handsome. His wife was awesomely beautiful and just everything every woman wanted to be. When she stepped out, I bet when she stepped out of the bathroom in the morning, she looked like the cover of some magazine. She was just so glamorous and beautiful. So I was totally enamored with them. Is there anybody that since then, uh, many people draw an analogy to Obama, is there anybody since then that has even come close to that stature you feel, or perhaps that persona, that JFK and the whole persona of Camelot? Well, I was a Reagan fan. I think that Nancy Reagan was a lady of ladies. And I'm a Bush fan. You can boo me if you want to, but I'm a Texan, and I'm, I absolutely love George Bush. And I think the best thing that ever happened to George Bush was Laura Bush. You may be right there, absolutely. How did you feel about, um, I'm just going to ask you this, this was in plan. How did you feel about Oliver's movie, Oliver Stone's movie? Because folks, you know, Bev met Oliver Stone, and uh, she was a consultant on the film JFK, of course, because her part was played, and we're going to get to that as well, by Lolita Delip. See, there's my dyslexia. Could you help me out with her name there? A beautiful Canadian lady I by the name of Lolita Davidovich. Davidovich. Yeah. I'm sorry, Lolita, if you're watching. But how did you feel about Oliver's uh, movie? I thought he did a phenomenal job. I, For what I know about this assassination, other than what I saw with my own eyes, I think it was just phenomenal. I found him to be a very honorable person, honorable to the fact that whenever it came time to do the motorcade, he wanted to match the license plate numbers. 
to the real license plate numbers. To the real license. And how did you feel about uh, Oliver's movie W, or have you seen it? Haven't seen it. <laughs> Boy, he really does an assassination. Talk about assassination, character assassination, and poor George. Boy, makes him look like a, uh, an idiot, which I, I don't think is the case at all. No, he's not. <laughs> I think he had an axe to grind there. Um, we're talking with real live history tonight, real living history, folks. Beverly Oliver was there directly in Dallas during that whole era around the assassination. Uh, Pre-assassination, assassination, and post-assassination. As a matter of fact, she was right directly in Daly Plaza. She witnessed the assassination. She filmed the assassination. We're going to get there very shortly, folks. Very, very shortly. Now, Bev, um, how did you get the camera that you filmed the uh, assassination with? I was dating a man who uh, managed the Kodak store in Six Flags over Texas. He actually came down from Rochester, New York to uh, manage the Kodak store at Six Flags. And he went back up to Rochester, New York in like September, I'm thinking it was September, uh, first part of September, and he brought me an experimental camera back. It was a Yashica experimental uh, camera. And uh, it was a prototype. And uh, he brought me 12 uh, magazines. It was a magazine-loaded camera. He gave me 12 uh, things of film. He said, that should last me till the camera comes out in two years. He told me it'd be on two years. And I had envelopes that I had to put these in and mail them to Rochester. You couldn't even get them sent off locally. You know, kids don't understand because all they understand is video nowadays. But uh, we couldn't even drop it off like at the corner drugstore and pick it up the next week. I had to send it to Rochester. And that was my first uh, cassette of film that I had used. So I hadn't sent anything off yet. So that's how you got it. Was there any inclination that um, uh, he wanted you to film or perhaps Jack wanted you to film the assassination? Oh no, Jack didn't want me to film the assassination at all. The biggest fight we ever got into was the night before. And uh, he, uh, okay, I was, I went to a party with Jack at the Cabana Hotel. It was, I think, Pepsi Cola. That's right. And uh, we were just there for a little while. And uh, uh, he knew that I was going to Fort Worth at night, not the cellar club, uh, but it was another private party that I went to. And he said, well, what are you wearing? You're going to see the president tomorrow night. He, but he didn't call him the president. I said, yes, I am. And he said, what are you wearing? And I said, well, Jack, I want to wear what I have on. He said, you're not wearing that dress I gave you to see that. Son of and God. we got, yeah, sort of. <laughs> and so we got into it. And, yeah, I still wore it. So you had your, your polka dot dress on, as you're right. Um, that party that night, uh, did anything out of the ordinary take place? No. It was it had nothing to do with anybody connected with the clubs or with the assassination at all. Nothing at all? It was, it was just some friends that I wanted to have the party with. How did you come to meet Lee Harvey Oswald? How were you introduced to him and David Ferry? And... Just let me explain who David Ferry was, folks. Best way to do that, I think, is to reference the JFK movie. David Ferry was, um, I guess you could say he was kind of involved with the mafia as well in New Orleans. He was, uh, Carlos Macello was a head of the uh, mafia in New Orleans, and David Ferry was uh, 
private investigator, if you will. He was involved, many people f feel, with the assassination on various levels, uh, perhaps as a liaison, perhaps as a bag man. When he was arrested, he actually, uh, when Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested, on his person was David Ferry's library card. Now that's bizarre in itself because the Warren Commission who was set up to investigate, it gets complicated, I know folks, bear with me, I'm going to try and walk us through this, who was set up to investigate the JFK assassination said that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't know Jack Ruby, very important to remember that one, and didn't know David Ferry. Very important. Yeah, he's got David Ferry's card on him, his library card. Cover up in place? Hmm, could be, eh? Could be. Let's go back to Beverly. How did you meet Lee Harvey Oswald? And then we'll talk about David Ferry. A couple of three weeks prior to the assassination, I had gone over to the club. All three of the clubs that I mentioned before staggered our shows so that the, the clientele could make all three clubs. And, uh, the carousel had the last show at night, and I was supposed to go to a club that night that was open, like called the Alibaba Club, uh, to a party with Jada. And I went over, which was the headline dancer for Jack. And I went over to tell her I had a migraine and I wasn't going to go. And when I walked in the club, I saw Jada. There was a table at the end of the runway, and I saw Jada sitting at the end of the table. There was a chair, and then Jack Ruby, and then a dark-haired man. And I made my way up to the uh, table, and when I got there, Jack stood up and pulled my chair out like he always did. And just as I was being seated, he very nonchalantly said, Hey, Bev, this is my friend Lee Oswald. He's with the CIA, pointing to the man on the other side of him. Well, I didn't know, at 17, I didn't know what the CIA was. At 65, I'm still not sure what they are. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people right now who's not sure who the CIA are. Um, how did he seem? What type of character was Oswald? Did he seem intelligent? Did he seem well-dressed? Uh, I don't know. Well, how would you best I'll, describe him? I uh, will just have to tell you what I felt at the time, okay? Which I'm not that way anymore, okay, Brent? Uh, I looked at this gentleman. He seemed dark. He didn't... Uh, seemed to have a personality. He wasn't dressed very well. He wasn't poorly dressed, but he wasn't dressed in a suit and a tie. He didn't look like he had any money, so I didn't have anything to say to him. I directed my conversation to Jada, and um, that wasn't the only time I saw him in the club, though. Uh, just a couple of three nights after that, and when I say a couple of three nights, don't pin me down because I don't remember the exact night. Uh, I walked in uh, just in time to hear this same man that I've been introduced to stand up and call Wally Weston and son uh, communist, but he used a word before that. And Wally said, excuse me, what did you say? He said, I think you're an Evan communist. And Wally just laid the mic down, hopped off the runway and walked over there and cold cocked him right in the mouth. And Jack Ruby came forward, came in grabbed him by his neck and he said I told you not to come back in this club again and pushed him out the door and uh, and I did not realize that Wally had ever told anybody about that until I did the Geraldo show many years ago and uh, and um, he played that segment that when he had interviewed Wally and Wally told him about 
hitting Lee Oswald in the mouth. And folks, I should tell you, Wally was a performer at the Carousel Club. Um, he was uh, a memorist, I guess you could call it. He was no, he a, was the MC. Oh, he was the MC. I apologize. He was the MC. You're, okay. Yeah. I got him confused with another character. With that guy named Bill. Bill. Yeah, I can't remember his name either. Yeah. I apologize for that. Yeah. Uh, the book is called Nightmare in Dallas, folks. Living history. Living history tonight. Um, this is incredible to have a, a woman like Beverly on to tell us what was happening for real. Never mind reading all the books, folks, and, and uh, referencing here and referencing there and, you know, the, the Warren Report. Um, Pure fiction. This is the real deal right here, right now. Beverly Oliver is joining us tonight. Easy way to get the book, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on the book cover associated with tonight's guest. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order this book from the comfort of your own home. Get the book. Um, you know, we're covering it very quickly, but there's a lot of detail in this book we're overlooking. Uh, this is the story of Bev's life as well, and uh, there's some poignant moments in it. Uh, I'm focusing right now primarily on the assassination, uh, but there are more moments than that, and um, hopefully we're going to get to some of them as well. I want to continue the night before the assassination. So you stayed up all night, and then you headed downtown to Dallas, uh, to Daly Plaza. Um, folks, if you're just joining us, uh, Night Fright, of course, we're talking with Beverly Oliver, Real Living History. She's about to take us to Daly Plaza, November 22nd, 1963. The Monarcade is about to turn the corner and come down Elm Street. Seconds, JFK will be shot. Can you walk us through that in, in all its gore and all its uh, awfulness? Because I want people to know that's why. Um, you know, uh, as we move away from that moment, um, things are going to be glossed over more and more. And I want people to know exactly what happened, what took place, uh, to the best of your recollection. That I recall very vividly. I still have nightmares about it. Um, when I got down to the plaza, there was such an electricity. Unless you were there, there's no way to explain it. But have you ever been in a situation where the hair stood up on the back of your neck? That's the way it was that day. The, the, the air was just full of excitement and, and static electricity. And I got my camera out to make sure it was working. I took pictures of the crowd, the buildings, uh, just to make sure it was in working order. Because I did not want to miss one second of my president. And you could tell as we got closer because the crowd got louder and louder. And uh, he turned on to uh, uh, Houston Street, and the crowd just went crazy. And then they turned, and as soon as they started to turn on to Elm Street, left onto Elm Street, I started filming. And shortly after the car got all the way onto Elm Street, there was a noise that went bang, bang, bang. And I thought that that was those things that uh, we used to have when we were children that you threw on the sidewalk and they popped. You didn't have to light them or anything. And I, and I remember thinking, why would somebody let their children bring something like that down to a place like this? And just no more got that thought out, and I'm filming the motorcade. No more than got that out of my mind when this boom happened. And when the boom happened, it looked like the whole back of his head just blew off. It looked like a bucket of blood was thrown out the back of the car over the trunk. 
It was the most horrific thing I have ever seen in my life. There's no amount of movies. There's nothing that could ever portray what really happened down there that day and the awfulness of it and the, oh, it, and I was absolutely frozen in shock. Uh, there's pictures of me. There's some in, in my book of everybody on the ground around me, but I'm standing there with my camera up to my chest. I couldn't move. I was so shocked. I could not move. And what was the reason you you picked that specific spot? Was it just because it was lack of a crowd, or? Well, I walked from my parking lot where I parked my car uh, and all the way to up Commerce, as it were, and I didn't intend to go to Dealey Plaza. I kept looking up the side streets, looking for a place where I could get close enough to the curb to take a film, and there just wasn't any place. And I kept walking and kept walking and kept walking until it led me down to what I called the grassy place back then. And I just walked across the two, you know, across Houston Street and then across the uh, com Commerce and uh, Main Street and to the edge of Elm Street where there was very few people standing and so I could get right there to the curb to take my pictures, take my film. Just prior to the shot, uh, the fatal shot, when you were, we started to film him, did you see him grab his throat? Uh, what did his face look like? You know, I, I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I think there's a lot of things that I've actually blocked out of my memory because they are so hurtful they are so uh, like i said i still have nightmares and it and yeah. it's 40 you know 48 years later i still have nightmares just a horrible horrible thing to happen especially to a young 17 year old girl like that um the newmans were in front of you i think if i'm not mistaken across the street across the street okay um what happened inside the car? Jackie leapt out. I guess I, I'm just trying to get as much uh, detail as possible, just so folks know. Brent, I was close enough to that car when it happened that I heard what she said and told them way back in 69, I said, she, um, you know, somebody said that his, he went violently forward. We won't mention that someone's name. But the only time he went violently forward was after the big baboon. She was right in front of his face. And and she said before the baboon, she said, oh my God, he's been, and I couldn't tell if she said shot or hit. But, and the reason why I couldn't is because now I've seen this is a Bruder film and I know that she her face was down like this. She pulled him down, pushed him down and crawled out of the back to get a piece of skull off the back of the car. Uh, it was horrendous. She literally, according to Clint Hill, pieced his head back together on the way to Parkland Hospital and tried to hold his head together. Uh, yeah, it, it, it. A lot of emotion there still, isn't there? It's still like yesterday to me. It doesn't seem 48 years ago. Do you want to take a minute? 
place. Whenever you're ready, you just let me know. I'll, I'll just do this. Folks, uh, we're speaking with a very brave woman tonight. Uh, she's recalling a nightmare of all nightmares. Uh, the death of President Kennedy, the assassination. She witnessed it. She was right there in Daly Plaza that day, and it haunts her to this day. The book is called Nightmare in Dallas. Her guest today is Beverly Oliver. www.nightfrightshow.com just click on the book cover. That'll take you right to a spot, folks, where you can order this book online. Now, it's her whole life story. Um, this is just one small piece of the puzzle. And I just happen to be focusing on the assassination aspects of it. But, folks, there are triumphs. There are tragedies. There is glory in this book. There is inspiration between these pages. I urge you all to get it because this is a human being story. Uh, it's one, if you're going through trial and tribulations yourself, you are going to come away inspired and know that there is hope and know that there is success, uh, wonderful things at the end of the road. Um, I, I can't say that enough. This is a very inspiring book, very well written, very well researched, terrific book, real living history. It just doesn't get any more real than this, folks. This isn't uh, a movie or something where you can fast forward. This actually happened. Um, let's go back to Bev. Bev, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, let's move on. Just after the assassination, there was a big wave of people ran up the grassy knolls. We've come to know it. Uh, you followed in suit. Did you smell the gunpowder and <clears throat> I did not know what that odor was until, even though I'd been around guns, my brother was a hunter, you know, uh, I I just didn't know what that odor was. And the first day that we reenacted the murder during the JFK movie, uh, all of a sudden that smell came back. And I realized what it was I had smelled that day. It was gunpowder. And it so upset me, I went to the parking lot and threw up. Oh, my God. And from that day forward, Oliver was kind enough to, to tell me if they were going to do the headshot so I could leave. How did you come to meet Oliver? <laughs> um, he contacted me about being part of of the movie and it uh, asked me to work with him on the movie and we met um, at the Stonely Hotel to have dinner and uh, he asked me if I had ever seen any of his movies. I don't do movies and I said no I haven't. Have you ever seen any of mine? <laughs> I, I read that, Bev, and I laughed. Oh, my God. And so did and, Oliver Stone. Yes, and that's how we met. And I grew very quickly to, to love Oliver. He's, um, he's a different kind of person, but what you see is what you get. Like it, love it, or hate it. That's who he is, and I just happened to like him. And uh, it was the same way with um, uh, Kev Costner. Kevin Costner. You know, I, I had never... He said, don't you know about Dances with Wolves? And I said, no. 
who dances with wolves. <laughs> that one of the neat things about that time period that I remember very fondly was I got to go see Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner. And did you really? Why, yes, I did. They did it. I think it was Lakewood Theater did a special showing, and he took me to see it. And I was very uh, thrilled, just thrilled, just thrilled. And there was these little ladies sitting in front of us, and about five of them, and they kept looking around and whispering, looking around and whispering. And it was sprinkling that night, so he ran out to get the van. We were in my van, which he drove the whole time he was in Dallas. And he came back and uh, to pick me up, I jumped in the car into the van. And as we pulled off, I rolled the window down. I said, yes, ladies, it was him. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. Do you have any behind-the-scenes stories you can tell us about Kevin or perhaps even Oliver or Lovita? No, I... I don't. Everybody on that set was extraordinarily professional the whole time. Um, it was real sweet. And uh, I really enjoyed, I can't think of anybody that I met that I didn't enjoy meeting, uh, that I didn't just consider it a very special time. Um, I even got to go to New Orleans and, and was actually, Kevin actually pulled me and my husband Charles and my daughter, my youngest daughter Pebbles and her best friend into that little bitty courtroom and we had to sit in the back cross-legged in these chairs but he said I want you to see this I want you in here for this this is history and we got to sit back there and watch the closing arguments of Kevin Costner which I of Jim extremely powerful scene Extremely powerful scene, without question. I think that's one of Oliver's uh, true masterpieces, actually. Um, it is. Beverly, um, I would like now, if, if it's okay with you, uh, you admit um, Woody Harrelson's father, Charles Harrelson. Now, many people don't know this story. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us that story as well. Well, I don't know a whole lot about it. I just know that uh, Woody's dad, uh, Charles Harrelson, was involved with the mob, especially the Dixie Mafia, um, under, um, um, I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, he was involved in that part, and there's a lot of people who think that uh, Charles was one of the tramps that was arrested that day. Uh, He's was in prison till he died for killing a judge I think it was yes. and and I know for sure that he was involved with uh, the Dallas mob because I saw him with my first husband too many times now what's interesting about this story as well Bev and this is all in the book by the way folks Nightmare in Dallas Beverly Oliver www.nightfrightshow.com click on the book cover um, the night she met uh, Woody Harrelson, y'all know him from Woody from uh, Cheers, and he's been in the um, latest movie, I think it was Zombies or something like that. Um, nothing to do with Woody, I'm just trying to uh, orientate you. His father, Charles Harrelson, when the night you met him, you had started talking about the assassination. And I think it was several nights later, you ended up in the hospital almost dead. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I... Uh... I walked in from the ladies' room, as I recall now, and into the middle of a conversation, and it was about the assassination. Now, I don't recall any specifics about the conversation, except that I made some statement like, I was there when it happened, dude. (laughs) And it wasn't done by some man in the 60s. Did 
just hang on. We, we see George Albert McGann. Mm-hmm. George Albert McGann, my husband, who was later murdered himself in a gangland slam, uh, pulled me up, pulled me out of the chair, and took me home and told me I would never, ever again bring up the subject of the assassination of President Kennedy. Or he didn't call him president. He said of Kennedy, unless I didn't want to live to the next day to talk about it. That's um, that's chilling. That's more than chilling. Mm-hmm. Because of that, you stayed silent um, right up into the House Select Committee, I would say. And then you met a fellow by the name of Gary Shaw. Actually, when I met Gary Shaw, it was a few years prior to. I met Gary in like 70, and I think the House Select Committee was in 77, wasn't it? 76, 77. Yeah, I think 77, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> I was, uh, my husband had been killed, he had been murdered, shot in the back four times in in the abdomen once, and I had already started singing in churches instead of nightclubs, and I was singing in the First Baptist Church of Joshua, Texas, and you know who Crystal Bernard is, who played in, I think it's Wings or Cheers, one of those, Mm -hmm. Uh, she's done several movies, and she's, um, I was on a, on a, Sub opera, and anyway, her daddy, Jerry Wayne Bernard, is a very dear friend of mine. He was singing when I was baptized, and he was leading the singing at this church. And Harlan Caton was preaching, and I wouldn't stay in motels back then when I was singing in churches. I asked to stay in homes because I didn't want somebody to be able to say they saw me come out of some man's motel room or something, you know. And I always requested there be a house, a home with children in it. And uh, so I got there late that afternoon, just in time to be practicing with Jerry Wayne to sing that night. And this gentleman comes in, and Jerry Wayne says, oh, by the way, this is Mr. Gary Shaw. Why don't you tell him where you were the day the president was killed? Well, I just started telling him. And the more I talked, the bigger his eyes got. Well, guess whose house I was staying in that night, that week? Gary Shaw's. Gary Shaw's. Yes. And so that day, and I had no idea people were researching it. I had no, you know, I didn't know anybody was curious as to who I was. I've never tried to basically hide until after I found out (laughs) that I started hiding. And, uh, uh, but that night at dinner uh, at his home, of course, the conversation got back to the Kennedy assassination. Everybody else at the table got bored. So Mr. Shaw said, why don't we go into my den and let's talk some more. I walk into his den, and it was a long den across the, from where we were sitting was all the volumes of the Warren Commission report. All at 26. That time, all 26, and at that time, I realized I didn't know who this man was. I didn't know who I was talking to, but to have 26 volumes of the Warren Commission report, he was something more than just a deacon at the First Baptist Church in Joshua, Texas. So I started clamming up. Little nervous there, no, I don't blame you. Um, just to follow up with that, has it, uh, were you nervous about uh, doing uh, the men who killed Kennedy? And uh, as an extension of that, were you very nervous of doing JFK as well? Have you well, been how told? How I came to do the men who killed Kennedy, because as I gave testimony to the House Select Committee and different people, uh, I realized that there were people out there who thought that I knew something that either I knew or maybe didn't thought I knew something I didn't know. And Nigel Turner contacted me to do the men who killed Kennedy. And I thought, and at that time he said it was never going to be shown in the U S. So at that time I thought if I ever wanted my story to be out there for posterity, now was the time to do it. So I did it. 
And then a couple of three years later, I find out that he's trying to negotiate with Fox to get it shown here in the United States. I was scared beyond belief. And I called my attorney and he said, well, you don't have that in your contract. You don't have anything in writing that it's not going to be shown here in the United States. And I said, what can I do? He said, get as public as you can, as fast as you can. So it was two weeks after that that Oliver Stone's company called me. And I had to decide if I wanted to go Oliver Stone public or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that really exploded into the mainstream. Yeah. Um, have you received any threats or anything like that? Uh, the last threat that I received was in 1993, after I went on the Geraldo show and said that I was going to be writing my book. I was in the process of writing my book. And they were both postmarked from Houston. I still have them. Uh, and one of them said, um, I don't remember which came first, but one of them said, uh, de just had death in black bo boxed letters, death. And then the next one said, snitch, you're dead. Holy shoot. And I used to get really scared because I would get these phone calls all the time, diff different phone calls, threatening phone calls and stuff, where, it, where we would be off in revival. I would get phone calls. It came to the church because back then that was before cell phones, and so we would hook into the church's phone. And they come through the church. They knew where I was. Whoever they are knew where I was, and I would get these threatening phone calls. Who do you, think, that, who do you think it was? Some dodo, I don't know. I finally, I finally got my blonde head together and decided that if somebody really was going to hurt me or do harm to me, they weren't going to give me a chance to get my gun loaded first. They weren't going to threaten me. They were just going to do it. So I got over it. it doesn't bother me anymore. Uh, and it's all calmed down now at this point? Mm -hmm. Everything's good. Yeah. Folks, Beverly Oliver's our guest tonight. Real living history tonight, folks. Uh, her book is called Nightmare in in Dallas. Uh, true life story of her uh, her life. Easy way to get it: www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book cover. That'll take you right to a place where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Now, there's a lot more stuff in this book that we just haven't had a chance to cover, and uh, all the more reason for you to buy the book. You're going to come away. Um, feeling high as a kite because it's truly truly inspiring um she was down in the pit folks without question and uh she, she's back uh and she's back in a big way she found the lord and uh, it turned her life around we're going to talk about um, your husband in just a second i just want to ask you though who do you think just speculation is fine who do you think killed president kennedy I think there were a lot of who's involved in it. Um, that's why it's so hard to actually put a pin, pin to it and say this person did it. I think it involved industrial, the military-industrial complex. I think it involved the mob. I, you know, I, um, I don't know who ordered it. I, I do know one thing though, and that is that the mob doesn't have snipers. Good point. Good point. After Jack was arrested uh, for the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald, did you ever have contact with him afterwards? No. None at no. all? No, because I I woke up on Sunday morning out of a drugged sleep. The only way I could deal with this was to drug myself to sleep. And I've got the, I sleep with the TV on even today. And I woke up to see this friend of mine blow the man away on national television that he had introduced to me as his friend. Unbelievable. Uh, 
And I hope that we find time to talk about my other daughter. Yes, we are. I was going to end with that, actually. Let's talk about how you met your husband and how you found the Lord. <laughs> well, I found the Lord before I met my husband. Uh, I was living in Big Spring, Texas. George Albert McGann was still alive, and I wandered into a church one night as a heroin addict and uh, heard a man telling me about Jesus, a different one than the one I'd heard about all my life, a God that wasn't sitting out on a throne somewhere in outer space going to whip me and cast my soul into hell every time I sin. But he was telling me about a God that loved me so much that he gave his only begotten son to die, to die for me, for me. And I accepted that Christ as my Savior, and it miraculously changed my life. He healed me of drug addiction. Um, that was in January, and in uh, sep the last of September, my husband was murdered. And then uh, a year and seven months later, I was singing at the Southern Baptist Convention in St. Louis, Missouri, where I met my current husband. I'm uh, now over 40 years and uh, we've been in the ministry. He just celebrated his 58th year of ordination and I just celebrated my 42nd year in the ministry. Congratulations to both of you. Thank you. Bev, as we, as I said at the outset, folks, uh, the book is called Nightmare in Dallas, Real Living History. This book is full of wonderful moments, poignant moments, um, sure moments of terror as well. But you were going to come away from this inspired, folks. And uh, the fact that, you know, she found the Lord, uh, something special all itself. And this show is not preaching. I'm just telling you that uh, by finding Jesus Christ, she turned her life around. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I think it's in the uh, Kabbalah, if I'm not mistaken, um, that it says uh, everybody uh, comes to God in their own way. And there you go. I'm just putting that information out there for you. Let's talk about your daughter. <laughs> uh, this is another joy of my life. First, let me tell you very quickly that my baby daughter has had four transplants. She's had three kidney transplants and a liver and a kidney transplant. She's 30 years old and she's doing fantastic. But when I was 15 years old, I gave up a little girl for adoption. And uh, I prayed for many years to be reunited with that daughter. And in 2006, I found my daughter in Vancouver, Washington, and our reunion has just been phenomenal. She has now moved back to the Dallas area, and she's a nurse at Baylor Hospital on the bone marrow transplant unit. Son of a gun. Um, well, what's that like? What's that like reuniting with your daughter after all those years? And what was it like for her? Was she receptive to it? Was Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked on the phone, you know, for a couple of three months before we actually met in person. And it was just awesome. And people are going to find this hard to believe. But whenever I, uh, the day I signed the papers, I asked to see her again. And I held her real close and I told her why. And that I would always love her and she would always, there'd always be a void spot in my heart that she fit into. And, uh, and I held her real close and I took a deep breath. And I could remember that smell. And when I hugged her that night, Brent, she smelled just like she did 46 years before. Oh, what a wonderful story. I told you it was inspiring, folks. This book has many layers to it. Nightmare in Dallas. Uh, you were going to walk away from this uh, feeling very good about things. 
No question at all. Uh, Beverly Oliver's been our guest tonight. I urge you all to get the book. It's living history as well as inspirational at the same time. www.nightfrightshow.com Just click on the book cover and we'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your old home. Life is good. Yes, it is. Wonderful. It gets better all the time. There you go. There you go. What's next for you, my friend? Well, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I just, uh, I live and when my husband says get in the motor home to go to another revival, I get in the motor home and go to another revival. (laughs) I love my life. I love my life. That's wonderful. That's Thank really you for having me. God bless you and God bless your husband as well and your whole family. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for being on our show tonight. I'm Brent Holland from nightfrighttriplew.nightfrightshow.com. See you next time. Listening to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 